Ah, great. Sorry, you didn't actually read the question like I did. So the question is, wait, what? We are raised from the dead. I thought our souls went hopefully to heaven, but I thought only Jesus was raised from the dead. I'm so glad whoever wrote that wrote that. Yes, this is a big part of 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 our faith that Jesus shows us what's in store for us. Uh, that if we die with Christ, we will also rise with Christ. Now, what we believe is is when we die, yes, there is this unfortunate uh, separation between our body and this other aspect of ourselves, which is still in union with God, which we refer to as the soul or out of ease and just tradition. So this other aspect of ourselves, our soul, there's a separation from the body, which isn't good that's not part of god's plan because we're physical beings um but that goes like that's uh however it works out joins god in heaven prepares to join god in purgatory or begins torments of hell uh and then at the at the final judgment the second coming of jesus which i'll talk about in a second uh will the resurrection of the the body will take place when those in heaven, those in hell will receive their bodies. And uh, yeah, pretty cool. All right. Now, going on to hell, and then we'll work our way up. So hell, first of all, we have to kind of get rid of the idea of hell as a place, and heaven as a place, and purgatory as a place. So oftentimes in our imagination, we think of, you know, like a three-tiered, thing where hell is somewhere deep down, heaven is up in the sky, and then purgatory is someplace in between. Uh, that, I mean, that's helpful insofar as it goes. I mean, it, it's an image that helps us think of it. Um, otherwise, it's very hard to think about. And it's really hard to teach kids without resorting to the easy-to-use images. So, so they have their place. But we want to clarify that hell is a state of definitive self-exclusion from communion with God and the blessed. So hell is not a created place as though God created it in preparation for all the damned. He didn't. He didn't really have much of a hand in it. Hell is a place of our own creation. We, we create hell in our own rejection of his life and our choice of self and exclusion. Now we choose this, I say. Why would anybody ever choose hell? Oh, I lost my place. One second. <clears throat> oh, uh, one last point with this. So the the pain, the primary like pain of hell is the pain of being separated from God. We all long for goodness and beauty and love. We often seek it in wrong ways, um, but we all long for it. Ultimately, what we're longing for is God, who is the good, the true, the beautiful, etc. And so to be eternally deprived of that will be an eternal torment for us, to be deprived of what we actually want. Okay, so why would somebody choose this? Uh, I don't know. But there, there's a couple things uh, to think about that I think shed some light on it. So one is Judas. First, I want to clarify, the church has never said Judas is in hell. The church has never said any single individual mm -hmm. is in hell. So I'm not, I'm not condemning Judas. But uh, I think 
and I'm, I'm, yeah, so I, th I think it's helpful still. So think of Judas. Judas was one of the apostles who followed Jesus. Now, he, we can imagine we don't hear about the calling of Judas in the Gospels. We hear about the calling of Matthew and, and Peter and James and John, um, but we don't hear about the calling of Judas. But I don't think it's a stretch of the imagination to think that he was called in much the same way. He was doing some kind of job. He was going about his life. But Jesus walks by and calls to Judas, come follow me. And Judas recognizes something good and something worth following in Jesus. And he leaves everything behind. I mean, all of his disciples left everything. And he follows him for years. But we can imagine, I mean, I kind of imagining, reflecting on the gospel. The gospel doesn't say but we can imagine over time there's something about Jesus that just turns him off. And it finally comes to a head when Jesus lets this sinful woman break this expensive jar of perfume, cover him with it, and then cry on Jesus's feet. And that was just that was just the last straw. And then he goes and betrays Jesus. Now, how could anybody do that? Why would anybody, after following Jesus for three years, turn from abandoning everything for him to turning him into his enemies. I think there's a little Judas side of all of us, or maybe most of us, maybe it's just me. It's just me. Uh, when I was in seminary, um, I, I was zealous in your typical young person, newly on fire for the faith kind of way, kind of an Im immature way. But I... I was, I was pretty serious about the faith, and I wanted to be holy, and I was praying, and I was doing other things that I thought would make me holy. But my second year, and I, you know, I wouldn't do this consciously, but I was kind of patting myself on the back. Good job. Doing great. Not like those other people. Second year in seminary, this guy enters seminary, who's actually holy, and I noticed I didn't love. There, there was absolutely nothing objectionable in him. Nothing objectionable, solid guy. But there was a part of me that just felt repulsed by him. We all love saints from a distance, but I don't think all of us love saints up close. There's something in us that, that I don't know why, but just feels turned off by somebody who's genuinely good. We feel repulsed. Now magnify that to the extreme, and what you get is, you know, Judas's betrayal of Jesus. And even further, we get um, the choice of hell, this repulsion uh, from the good and turning towards us ourselves. Uh, there's a meditation for me to read it to you. I'm going to read it to you, whether you say yes or no. But I'd like to, you to feel like you have a choice. So this is from a priest, uh, Romano Gordini, Monsignor Romano Gordini. This is a... While not necessarily physically trapped, he's talking about kind of the experience of the damned. While not necessarily physically trapped, your whole experience of everything will be as if you were buried alive in a coffin. No wider or longer than your body. No room to move, no room to breathe. You will lash out against the walls surrounding your imprisoned soul, but they will never widen, and you will never feel the open air or touch 
of another person. You will never hear a kind word or see a smile. The terrifying thing, if that wasn't terrifying enough, the terrifying thing about it is that even if someone were to open the lid to your coffin, this would cause you even more suffering and you would plead that the person nail the lid shut again and lock you into your misery. This is precisely why hell is eternal. Uh, there's a there's kind of a similar experience. It's not the same. It's it's like a, whenever you get in a depressed mood uh, or like a really melancholic mood, um, being with other people must feel like torturous or, um, you know, depending on the gravity of the particular moment of depression that you're in, if somebody offers uh, help to you, your whole self just wants to reject. I'm seeing a lot of like puzzled faces, like you've never had this experience before. Maybe it's just me. And you just want to push away the help that's being offered. Now, I want to clarify, there's no connection between depression, melancholy, and sin. It's just a, a natural experience that can kind of give a glimpse of uh, it's an emotional, psychological experience that can give a glimpse of what this spiritual experience uh, might be like and kind of the logic behind it. That uh, you can be in the state where you just want to reject the good that's outside, communion with other people. Now you magnify that to the to the umpteenth degree and you got you got hell. So we believe hell is a really is a real possibility. The church affirms this. It's a real possibility. <clears throat> but we have hope, we have hope for the salvation of all. What this means is we can't write off any individual as too far gone, including ourselves. We can't write off ourselves or anybody else as too far gone. My wife was involved when, when we were at Steubenville. She was involved with sidewalk counseling outside of an abortion clinic. And we, we had a group of students who got outside of an abortion clinic in Pittsburgh to pray and talk to women and men. Uh, going into the clinic in the morning before the abortions took place. But then when that group left, my wife and her group would come in for the second shift. Why would they come in for the second shift? So that there would always be somebody out there after the abortion to tell these women in whatever way is appropriate, depending on the case, to tell these women that God has not given up on them, that God is still there with his mercy no matter what you've done. I think that's a beautiful illustration of, of our attitude towards evangelization and what it should be. We can't write off any, anybody. We can have hope for the salvation of all. But Jesus also calls us to go cast our nets in and uh, you know, share the good news. All right, cool. Judgment, purgatory. There's a lot that could be said about purgatory, but I just want to uh, emphasize the purification aspect of it, that it's about being purified. It's not a place. So I, when I taught last time, I talked about my, my uh, conversation with my Protestant friends, and we were talking about purgatory, and I said, can anything unclean enter into heaven? And they said, no, of course not. Well, what, you know, what happens to you because you're not totally clean? Well, I get, Jesus purifies me. Like, yeah, we agree. So, so I don't see any room for, you know, reason to debate with Protestants or anybody 
well, Protestants, uh, about uh, that purification aspect of, of purgatory. Um, entering into the life of the Trinity of complete self-giving love, it's hard. We have a lot of selfish tendencies in us, and it's like going to the doctor and getting those bones reset. You know, this healing process is, is difficult. So we're healed by Jesus, the fire of divine love, but in that healing, it's also painful. So the fires of purgatory is the fires of divine love. Cool. But where we go a little further than our Protestant brothers and sisters is this aspect of, of justice. So every sin impacts another person. The clear example is murder. You murder somebody, you don't just impact them, you impact their family, their friends, yada, yada, yada. Uh, but that, that's clear in the case of murder, but it's also the case in any kind of sin, even the most private sins, our sins impact other people. Now, with purgatory, is, is it just, is it right for you to enter into eternal happiness when there's still people suffering because of your sins on earth? Is it right for Immaculate Ilbegiza, the people who killed her entire family, to ent enter into eternal happiness while Immaculate is still suffering from what they've done. It's not right. There's, there's something wrong with that picture. Of course, they can be offered forgiveness and we pray for their salvation, but there's also an element of justice there uh, that um, needs to be recognized. And this also frees us up to forgive. Now, when Immaculate forgave the people who killed her family, it's not like, she just brushed it aside. That was nothing. It's nothing. No, it's something. It's something big. But what she did is she brushed it into God's hands, knowing that God will somehow make everything right. Somehow make everything right. And now I'm free to forgive. So purgatory is one of the elements of God making things right. So to making people rectify the wrongs that they've that they've done. Now we can help people in this process by taking on some of the labor. So this is what it means to pray for the people in purgatory, to offer our love and intercession on their behalf to take on their labor and make up for what they've done. We can do works of, of mercy in their name. Um, we can offer mass in their name, taking on their, their burden. All right, so that's, that's the justice elements of, of purgatory. Um, I was going to talk about indulgences, but um, then that would cut out all the time for heaven, and that'd be sad. So we can, we can table indulgences, or if anybody has a question about that. But the basic logic of indulgences is it's taking on the burden of the souls in purgatory, the church taking on the burden of them, um, and kind of making up for their wrongs on their behalf. Cool. Heaven. All right. Yeah. Woo. Yeah. It's really hard to imagine uh, what heaven is going to be like, but don't be disappointed. You won't be disappointed. All right. The end. Sound good? All right. So it's really hard to, to picture. I mean, we can't picture what heaven is going to be like. We can know very little about it. But we do know some things. So first thing we know is we'll have the beatific vision. What this means is we'll see God face to face. 
God, who is goodness, truth, love, beauty itself, will see him without a veil. So we'll, we'll see God. We'll also have communion with Christ and with other people. And this communion will be pretty intense. We'll be completely intimate with each other, um, as, as intimate as it possibly can be. So there will be no divisions. There will be no hatred. There will be no gossip. There will it'll just be complete communion with other people and with, with God. That's pretty cool. No more suffering, no more death. There will be rest. And we'll get glorified bodies. Uh, we see this in Jesus. So Jesus rises from the dead. His body is like his body before. You can touch it. He eats. But it's also not like his body before because it's difficult for people to recognize him. Like there's something different about even the way you see his body. Um, he can doesn't seem bound by space and time in the same way anymore because he can pass through walls, he can be in different places. So this is a glimpse of what the resurrected body will be like. And then Paul talks about it in his letter to the Corinthians. So you can go there to read more. But we can speculate a little bit. Now, I like speculating. One is about the justice thing. So Immaculate could hand over all the wrongs done to her with the sure hope that God will make things right. Now, what does it mean to make things right? Well, look at her family. Her family, she had younger siblings, I believe. Their, their lives were taken from them. All their, their hopes in their, for that life were taken. All the experiences that they were going to have were taken away. What does it mean for God to make things right for them? Uh, I had an older brother who died in the womb. It was a miscarriage. His name is Joseph. His, uh, through no fault of anybody's, his life was taken. He was, he was robbed of what, was, what should have been his. Now, what does it mean for God to make it right for him? I don't know, but just speculating with some other people in the church that it might mean in some way restoring the life that should have been his however that might look. Restoring those things that were, you know, taken from us. Uh, eternity. We'll be there forever. Which, when I was a kid, that sounded terrifying. You know, it's like, oh, forever. Forever. And then they would say, you know, Mass is already a participation in heaven. It's like, I'm going to be in Mass forever? So, okay. Don't think of, uh, uh, we say we'll, we'll participate in God's eternity, which literally means outside of time. So we can't think about heaven in the same way as we think about time in, in, on earth. But we even experience time in a couple different ways. So we can experience time in kind of an objective mechanical way. Like there's 60 minutes in an hour. There's 24 hours in a day, et cetera, et cetera. But we also experience time, you know, in a more personal way. Like when you're bored and time just drags. When I was teaching and each period just seemed to never end and the school year, the school year would just go on forever and summer was completely short. Or as you get older and the years go by quicker and quicker and quicker. But then you have moments of just pure joy, whatever that might be. I mean, it could be when you got married or had a baby 
Or for me, it's after a long day's work and I sit down with a glass of wine and a book. Oh, just almost bliss. So you you can you can imagine if you want to do a thought experience, you can imagine uh, a moment of just joy and it almost seems timeless. You're out of time. Heaven is like that moment just it'll never end. Like those moments in our life always come to an end. They always dissipate, but heaven will be that moment of joy, but you know, elevated beyond imagining because the joy of wine and a book is hardly comparable to the joy offered in Jesus. But moment of pure joy, just this unending, timeless. And not only do you get to experience unending eternal joy, but you also get your body back at the second coming of Jesus. So the last thing, final judgment, new heavens and new earth. This is another thing that people often neglect. So Jesus comes again. There's a second judgment, which is when Jesus will restore in some mysterious way all of creation and make a new heaven and a new earth. New heaven meaning sky, basically everything. The whole created order will be refashioned. So in some way, you know, the world will be taken up into the life of God. Not in the same way as us who are invited into communion, covenant communion with God, but in some mysterious way. So if you wonder if your dog or cat will be in heaven, you can say yes. How the dog and cat will be in heaven, we don't know. They won't join into blessed communion with God like we do. But all of creation will be taken up in some way so that you can look at whatever a blade of grass will be like in heaven. And it'll be so transparent with divine life that you can encounter God through that blade of grass. Uh, we get a foretaste of this in the sacraments when ordinary elements of earth like water is taken up and made into a conduit of God himself, like baptism, you're just normal water and boom, you've received the Holy Spirit. The Eucharist, normal bread, normal wine, but they receive the words of Jesus and they're elevated, and they receive divine life and contain God substantially. That's, that's a foretaste of what the new heavens and new earth will be. All of creation will be taken up and elevated and share in some mysterious way. So will you work in heaven? Have football? Will you make uh, your barbecues? I don't know, but we'll have our bodies and they'll be they'll be the earth. So we can always speculate about it. But that's that's hopeful. That's positive stuff, right? All right. I talked too long. Questions? I can always stay later and answer questions too after we close. I can Oh, we are over. The clock is behind. 30 seconds. All right. I'll, I'll, I'll stay behind if anybody has any questions, but let's close in a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Glory be to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, shall we. Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Thank you all for coming. Enjoy your nights.